Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And as we continue our study through Psalm 119 and the book of James, we are taking it eight verses at a time through the 119th Psalm as each verse or section or strophe uh, starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This morning's letter, the way you pronounce it, I believe, is Tasadi. No? Okay. Yes? Saudi, Tasadi? Saudi. Saad. Saudi. Okay. There you go. Um, and in it, the righteousness of the Lord and the righteousness of his word is extolled. Um, it's the dominant theme, that word occurring five times in our text, righteous. And so this morning, I hope we'll see, as we study through this, uh, that God is righteous. We understand what that means, that his word is righteous, and that we would find strength, encouragement, satisfaction, support from it. I'd like to begin, though, by reading Psalm 119, verses 137 to 144. <clears throat> Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteousness forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Lord God, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we might see your glory. And that words that we toss around so commonly, righteous, can only truly be ascribed to you. You and you alone are righteous and holy. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and understand that, that we would appreciate the gift you offer us in giving us your righteousness in Christ, and that we would find um, strength, satisfaction, stability from it. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I propose the division of this section into three points. Um, in each one, some attribute or truth of God and his word is declared by the psalmist, and in each section, some lament, some suffering, some anguish is expressed. And I think the juxtaposition of the truth of God's righteousness and his own experience demonstrates how the righteousness of the Lord and the righteousness of his word are meant to invigorate us in opposition, uphold us in rejection, and satisfy us in affliction. That's, that's my thesis, that understanding, confessing, delighting in the righteousness of the Lord will invigorate us in opposition, upholds us in rejection, and satisfies us in affliction. So let's dive in verses 137 to 139 and see how the Lord's righteousness invigorates in opposition. The psalm begins with a bold declaration, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. 
It may surprise you, but that opening declaration, I spent the first two or three days this week studying, wrapping my head around what's being said. And the fundamental meaning that the Lord is righteous, literally righteous means to adhere or to conform to a standard. And I think we get this most obviously when we understand God requires us to be righteous and he would measure us by his law and his standards. And so then there are those well, there are none except the Lord Jesus, who have lived perfectly, they conform to that standard that God can say righteous, or unrighteous. Uh, the New Testament uses the word just and justify, same, the, the same concept. But what does it mean when we say that the Lord is righteous? Lord, of course, being his covenant name, Yahweh. What are we saying specifically when we say that the Lord is righteous? Are we saying God measures up to some standard? What standard? And if there's a standard outside of God that he has to measure up to, does that make the standard supreme? You start to see the difficulty here. What do we mean when we say the Lord is righteous? And the fundamental meaning of the word to measure up to a standard and yet, there is no standard outside of God. It's not as though timeless and eternal is the Lord God and this standard of righteousness that just, thankfully, he measures up to. No, I, I think theologians and students of the Bible have, have long confessed, no, God is the source of the standard. But if God is the source of the standard, then the other potential problem when we say the Lord is righteous is what are we saying more than simply the Lord is the Lord? A equals A. He is who he is. And why would that be a source of praise? Isn't it obvious that a thing is a thing? An apple's an apple, a rock's a rock. What, what are we saying? Clearly something is being said here that the psalmist views as great. The word righteous appearing in 137, in 138, in 142, your righteousness is righteousness forever. In 144, the testimonies are righteous forever. Now, he's, he's thrilled, invigorated by, strengthened by, passionate about the Lord's righteousness. And the first two or three days of this week, I was still trying to wrap my head around, what exactly are we saying when we say the Lord is righteous? I'll propose the following um, explanation. God is the source of the standard. There's nothing outside of him that he holds up to. And yet, we see in Scripture the Lord being measured by man or by angels. Let me give you one example. Revelation 16, 5 through 6, God sends a judgment down. The waters are turned to blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just or righteous are you, O Lord, who is and was. Then he gives a reason. For you have brought these judgments. For they shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. So the angel sees what God does and says, based on what I see you doing, I can affirm, I can amen your righteousness because of how fitting what you've done is. The, the psalmists argue the same way. Psalm 9, verse 4. You have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgments. The judgments that you hand out, that you meter out, Lord God, I can see, and I can see that you upheld my just cause, and so I can confess you are righteous. So, so what do we do with this? Here is my proposed solution to this problem. God is who he is. 
and the center of his being and his self-revelation to Moses at the burning bush, when Moses says, who shall you say, who shall I say sent me? He said in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So God is who he is. And God is pleased with who he is. He is satisfied in who he is. And creation, in one sense, is God making a stage or a theater to demonstrate, to reveal who he is. He creates a, a context where he can show who and what he is. This is why the heavens to declare God's righteousness. And then he makes us in his image. And he puts a reflection of his law on our hearts. And then he gives us his word. And all of this testifies to who and what he is. And what he is like. And what he loves. And what he hates. And what he's pleased by. And what he's displeased by. And so because we have this context around us. His law in our hearts. His revealed word to us. God can again and again say, or we can confess, Lord, you are who you are. The things you've said you love, you love. The things you've said you hate, you hate. The, the promises you've made that you said you would do, you've done. And so we can, in some sense, look at what he does and say, you are righteous. You always do what is fitting and right and good and holy and just. Always. So the psalmist is looking around him in life, looking in God's word, and he confesses, Lord, you are righteous. This, this is good news for us. The contrast is the chaos of the world. The men, the women around you, the nations around you, the politicians around you, they do not always do what is right and fitting. Our God always does. Always does. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. And because God has revealed who he is, and he's revealed what he loves, what he hates, what he requires, we can then watch him act in space and time and confess you are righteous, Lord. You, you are who you've said you are. There is no inconsistency or lack of integrity. You are every bit who you've declared yourself to be. You are righteous. So, what that means then, point two here, is no, this is not just what he does, but who he is. Who he is. Psalm 48.10. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth, your right hand is filled with righteousness. And your hands are pictures of deeds what he's saying is, Lord, all your deeds, all your works, all your activity are, is righteous. The foundation of God's throne, Psalm 9, 4 says, You've maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgments. He who judges the world with righteousness, he judges the people with uprightness. So it begins this declaration, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. The theme's going to be the, the character of God is transferred to his word. As the Lord who speaks, so is the word or the speech of the Lord. So declaration, the Lord is righteous, literally to adhere to a standard. And this is not just who and what he does, but who he is. His nature, his character is this. He is the source of the standard of righteousness. 
which leads to the second declaration, that the word of God is righteous. The word of God is righteous. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. The word of God is righteous. The first declaration is the Lord is righteous. The second declaration that the word of God is righteous. And the, the logic here is that the attributes of the word are derived from his character. So you begin by saying who God is. And then when that God speaks, his speech reflects his character. It's imprinted by his nature. That's, that's the logic. That, that scripture is to, understood to be the very word of God. Exodus 24.4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. It's one of the things we believe as Christians is these aren't just the words of men, but the Holy Spirit moved men. And this is, in fact, God's word. The psalmist starts by recognizing the source of righteousness is the Lord himself. And then he sees that the Lord gives, that the word proceeds from the Lord. And the word then is itself also righteous. Which also means God's word is always right. What it says is always fitting and true. And it can be challenging for us because there are some things I know I've read that I can struggle with. But because the word proceeds from the mouth of the living God, because he is eminently righteous and holy, we receive, we believe, we confess, so is his word. Secondly, God's word is his doing. God's word is his doing. Um, it's wrong to think of God's word as some static entity. We can oftentimes understand that speaking is a form of doing. You can give a command. You can issue a summons. You can give encouragement. And again and again in Scripture, God's speech is seen to be powerful and active. Even here, the way he says it, you have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. God's word is an evidence of his righteousness. God's word is an evidence of his faithfulness. It's the outpouring of his faithfulness. It's not pouring of his righteousness. It's him acting and doing. This is not static dead letters. This is an active and living word from God demonstrating his faithfulness and his righteousness. So that's, that's the two declarations. To put it simply, the Lord is righteous. His word is righteous. And then we get to his lament. In contrast, that he shows up. My zeal consumes me. Because my foes forget your words. Zeal, speaking of strong passion. One translation I read, I think it was Alec Mottier. My zeal has disintegrated me. It's a picture of a fire burning something up. He's filled with passion, anguish, or anger. The context will depend. But I think here is his grievance, his, his being provoked by his enemies, and it fills him with vigor. And that's where I get the idea that the righteousness of God and his word invigorates him in opposition. Because he sees the righteousness of the Lord, and by extension, the righteousness of the Lord's word, when others treat it lightly, let it drop to the ground, forget it, he is provoked. He is consumed with passion. 
He's burning up a strong passion because his foes forget God's great words. That's the logic. If God has been so faithful, I mean, you understand God didn't have to speak. He didn't have to reveal himself. He didn't have to tell us who he is. But as the psalmist says in 138, you've appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. If God has condescended to us to reveal who he is, to tell us about himself, this is what I love. This is what I hate. This is who I am. This is how you can know me. This is how you can approach me. Think of the impudence. Think of the evil of those who, they get distracted. They find something else to get interested in. And notice, for those who see the righteousness of God and his word, it provokes a reaction. Truth is not simply a matter of knowing things. But our affections are gravitated to it. When someone we love is dishonored, we're provoked. When something we love is forgotten, we're consumed with passion. Martin Luther famously once said he couldn't get any work done unless he was good and angry. And I think that's what he means. I'll give you one example. I got a book I keep in my desk because periodically I'll get discouraged or just feel despondent or uh, tired. And I kid you not, I pull this out. What is God? And I read it and I get angry and I can get work done. This is no, this, this is one of the most evil books I've ever seen in my life. I kid you not evil because it, it doesn't make its statement out as an argument that you can interact with. It's written for little kids. What is God? What is God? You are asking a very big question. Boys and girls, grown-ups and old people, everyone wants to know, what is God? And it goes through this book. Here's where it ends. There are many ways to talk about God. Does that mean that everything that everyone says about God is right? Does that mean that God is everything? Yes, God is everything, great and small. God is everything far and away and near. God is everything bright and dark. God is in everything in between. If everything is God, God is the last leaf on a tree. If everything is God, God is an elephant crashing through the jungle. If everything is God, then God is the hot wind in the desert. If everything is God, then I am God, and you are God, all of us our God. And I read that, and then I can get some work done, because I get invigorated. There's some kids somewhere going, oh, I guess my dander up. Because no, we're supposed to have an emotional, affectional response to truth and error. We're supposed to love truth. And error and lies and faithlessness is supposed to create a response in us. It's not just enough to know things. Truth has got to grab a hold of your affections. Its opposite has got to offend. And so he sees and confesses the righteousness of the Lord. He confesses the righteousness of his word, and in response to that, it invigorates him and drives him. His, his foes forget God's word, and rather than being despondent and giving up, he's consumed with passion. That's, that's the first great truth of seeing the righteousness of the Lord and the righteousness of his word. Secondly, verses 140 to 141, the righteousness of the Lord and the righteousness of his word upholds in rejection. We begin with the declaration, your promise is well tried, your servant loves it. 
I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. So the declaration, I believe, means God's word is reliable. Um, some translations take this, it is tested. Others, that it's refined. And, and I think the idea is something that is pure. There's no dross. There's no waste. There's no fat. It's, it's all solid, good, pure, dependable, reliable. God's word is reliable. It is well-tested and without dross. Psalm 12.6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in the furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And when you purify silver, you put it in a pot and you burn it, and the dross and the impurities rise to the surface and you can skim them off, and you can do that all over again. And God's word to use a metaphor, is it's like silver that that's been done to seven times. It is exceedingly pure. Or another way to put it, there, there's no dead wood here. It, it is through and through pure and dependable. And then by implication, you can rely on it. It's like a chain where every link is well forged. There is no weak link. It is refined and pure. And notice the response, emotions, this isn't just truth, but it has a response to the affections. Your servant loves it. Your servant loves it. It is loved by all who serve the Lord. And, and I think you can understand why. We live in a world where people forget God's word. We live in a world where people can mock, deride us. We live in a world where people don't always do what is right. In fact, it seems like most of the time they do what is wrong. But there's a God who only ever does what's right and fitting. And he gives us a word that through and through is right and fitting and pure and just and right. And so in the chaos around us, we have a lifeline. We have an anchor. We have firm ground under our feet. And so we love it. This, you can't trust things in this world. You can't say this world is pure, or the people, or the truths of this world are dependable. It seems like every other day we've got new rules, new concepts, what's up, what's down. But God's word is pure and tested. There's not going to be an updated, edited, revised version. He spoke, he didn't stutter, and it's dependable. And consequently, for those who delight in righteousness... This, then, tells us what is right and fitting. This is the logic of Psalm 119, 11 to 13. Moreover, by them, your, your word, is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent of hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And a few verses earlier... The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It's not enough to confess those truths. If those truths don't lay hold of your heart. If you're impartial to God's word, it doesn't matter that you can say those things. 
If you believe those things, it will have an impact on your affections and on your emotions. You will both love it and you will be offended by all that opposes it and treats it lightly. Which then leads to the lamentation. I am small and despised. He is viewed as insignificant and young. Already in the psalm, in verse 9, we have indications this may be a youth. When he asks the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? And it's quite possible the author is someone young. What we do know is his enemies, who've been showing up periodically throughout the psalm, oppose him and deride him, and, and they gossip about him, and they slander him, and they lay traps for him. His confidence is not found in himself. Our culture would tell you, if you're feeling downtrodden, believe in yourself. Our culture would tell you, um, you just need to have a positive view of yourself and your potential. The psalmist is aware of how small and insignificant he is. What he finds hope in is not himself, but in the sustaining God and his word. I am small and despised. Yet I do not forget your precepts. See, that's the contrast between him and those who offend him. What what offends him about his foes? They forget God's word. Verse 139. I may be small. I may be despised. But I don't forget God's word. That's what he's putting his trust in. Not in himself. Not in his abilities. Not in his potential. My enemies may be great. My enemies may be mighty. They may be powerful. But they forget God's word. And even though I'm small, even though I am despised, I do not forget your precepts. Because again, you're seeing that chain linking back to the righteous and holy God. And so even when we face opposition and rejection, confidence in the righteousness of God, the righteousness of his word should hold us fast, keep us steady, And uphold us in rejection. I do not forget your precepts. Which brings us then to the last truth here. um, That the righteousness of the Lord and the righteousness of his word satisfies us in affliction. Verses 142 to 144. Your righteousness is righteousness forever. And your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out. But your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. And do you see those two parallel statements? 142, your righteousness is righteousness forever. And then 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. And here the emphasis is, we've already learned God is righteous and his word is righteous. Now what we learn is they are unchangeably and eternally righteous. They will always be righteous. The the SAT word is they're immutable. They're unchanging. And that, of course, should give us confidence. God's word is not sufficient and faithful for you today. It, It will be tomorrow and for all time. God can not only be trusted today... But always, he is who he is, and he will continue to be who he is 10 trillion years in the future. And his word will continue to be righteous and good and faithful. We come to one who is 
and will be forever, world without end, amen, unchangingly in his righteousness and faithfulness. He will always do what is fitting and right. He will always do what is just, good, holy. And his word will always reflect that character as well. And so even though the psalmist can say he is besieged by pressure and stress, I think that's the idea, trouble and anguish have found me out. He's feeling pressure. He's in a tight space. Knowing that the sufficiency, the goodness, the righteousness of God's word today, tomorrow, the day after, and forever gives him delight and satisfaction. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. The Christian faith is not being delivered from, removed from trial and anguish. It's that in and with the suffering and the trial, the satisfaction is joy it's delight, it's comfort, it's hope. And that's what we see here. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. He's besieged by pressure and stress, and yet he delights in God's word. Think of it again. No matter how badly you've got it off, the rich and the wise of this world forget God's word. But, but if you're a Christian, you've got the secret of the universe. You know the God who made everything. And so you can delight in the knowledge of him and what he's given you, even as external circumstances conspire against you, even as life is difficult. It gets back to what you believe and what matters. You can be a nothing and a nobody, but you can be a nothing and a nobody who knows God, who has God's word. And that can satisfy you. That can satisfy you. Your righteousness is righteousness forever. I mean, this gets us back again to the heart of who God is. I am who I am. He is who he is. He continues to be who he is. Unchanging. Eternal. And for those who know him, for those who come to him, that delights and satisfies your testimonies are righteous forever. Which brings us to the one petition, the one request in this strophe, this verse. Give me understanding that I may live. Give me understanding that I may live. Notice that his suffering drives him to the word. I think if you followed my logic up to this point, this last step makes perfect sense. We're in an unstable world. We're in a world surrounded by foes and enemies who trample God's word underfoot, who, who ignore and forget it. We have suffering, trouble, anguish about us. And yet, we, we have a word that is always right, true, and fitting. It, it, it tells us what to do, where to go, how to live, what is good, what is bad. It can inform us, it can enlighten us, it can instruct us. Well, then what's the one thing we, we need to understand? We need understanding. <laughs> So the one petition in this eight-verse stanza, give me understanding that I may live. His suffering drives him to the word. Now, some form of that request, give me understanding that I may live, or enliven me, or revive me, according to your promise, shows up about 20 times in this one psalm. And I just want to pause and consider that life 
especially in this stanza, is seen to be in relationship to the righteous God. It's not just life so I can live another five years, but life in the presence of and together with and at peace with this righteous God. Turn to John 17. God is righteous, always righteous, everywhere righteous. And yet we are not. And that can be a problem. It is a problem. A big problem. I've heard one preacher say, the worst news in the world for sinners is that God is righteous. Because what must a righteous and holy God do to those who are unrighteous? The amazing news of the gospel is that God freely gives us, offers us his righteousness. The righteousness of God is manifest. And that, we learn in the New Testament, is what it means to truly have life. You know, the, the righteousness of God, celebrating God's righteous, righteous, forever and always righteous. And you can be too in Christ. Let me, let me just show you this. Um, John 17, Jesus goes out to pray. He prays first for himself. And he says this, um, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, or the son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The psalmist is asking for life. We know that life, righteousness, and truth unite in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I would invite you to, to delight in, to be satisfied in, to be upheld by the truth that God is righteous, but that can only be a joy for you if you can also know that this God get, freely gives you in Christ his righteousness. It's not that we earn or achieve to his righteousness, but he freely gives it. And so in Christ, we are counted righteous. That truly is the greatest gift, the greatest possession, and it should satisfy our souls, invigorate us in opposition, uphold us in rejection, and satisfy us in affliction. I'm going to close with the word of prayer, and we'll transition to our time of communion. Lord God, you are righteous, and we barely grasp the first inklings of what that means. I pray that you would open our eyes to behold your righteousness, that we would regard truly and rightly our own unrighteousness in ourselves, that we would not kid ourselves, flatter ourselves, but freely confess our iniquities so that we might receive your forgiveness and receive your righteousness in Christ Jesus. In his name we ask, amen.